I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is Focus on Apartheid, the documentary photography of Margaret Bork-White. Our opening music comes from the Kyle Shepard Trio. This is Dream State. Kyle Shepard is a South African jazz pianist who was the winner of the 2014 Standard Bank Young Artist of the Year Award for Jazz. Again, that was Kyle Shepard, a South African jazz pianist. Uh, as a photographer for Life and Fortune magazines, Margaret Burke White traveled to Russia in the 1930s, photographed the Nazi takeover of Czechoslovakia in 1938, recorded the liberation of, the, uh, of Buchenwald at the end of World War II, and documented Calcutta streets strewn with putrefying corpses decaying in the heat and being consumed by bloated vultures in the aftermath of the 1946 Muslim-Hindi communal riots. In 1949, life centered to South Africa to take photographs in a country that was becoming racially polarized by white minority rule. Life published two photo essays highlighting Burke White's photographs, but much of her South African work remained unpublished until tonight's guest got his hands on it. Alex, Lich- Alex Lichtenstein is an associate professor in the Department of History at Indiana University. His work centers on the intersection of labor history and the struggle for racial justice in societies shaped by white supremacy, particularly in the U.S. South and 20th century South Africa. He's the author of Twice the Work of Free Labor, The Political Economy of Convict Labor in the New South, and along with Rick Halpern, the book that brings him to interchange, Margaret Burke White and the Dawn of Apartheid, published by Indiana University Press. Thanks for joining us tonight, Alex. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> so this is a, um, a complicated, and yet you make a simple presentation here, but a complicated book in a complicated world and in a world gone by that is still really with us. And I guess it we need to begin in lots of places, but I, I suppose let's first talk about the genesis of the book. How did it come to be? Well, I was uh, browsing in a bookshop and looked at a book of photographs by Margaret Bork-White, and the one that is currently on the cover of this book leapt out at me, and that's a photograph of two uh, miners at the bottom of a gold mine shaft in South Africa, directly underneath the city of Johannesburg from 1950. And I was very struck by that image, particularly at the time I was beginning to do some research on labor history in South Africa. And I asked myself, as researchers often do, is that the only one? What other photographs had she taken? And I dug around a bit and I could find, as you suggested, maybe two or three photographs that she took in South Africa to document apartheid in 1950. So I started digging around a bit. This was probably about 10, 15 years ago. And uh, my co-author, Rick, and I discovered that, in fact, uh, when we looked on the website for Time Life Images, there were about 140 photographs that she took. And uh, as you note, most of them are unknown. Uh, so uh, we began to look and see, see what these photographs were of and thought about how we might publicize them and, and make them available more widely. 
And that uh, that became a, a museum exhibit first, is that right? Eventually it became a museum exhibit, which opened at the Mathers Museum here at Indiana University. And uh, I chose about 50 of these images and, and arranged them. Some of them had appeared in Life magazine. And some of them, I'm, I'm pleased to say, had really never been seen outside of the archives before. So, And then I took that exhibit to South Africa, where it opened in Johannesburg, Cape Town, and Durban. And I got on the radio there, as I am here, and, and talked about it. And uh, finally managed to prevail on, on Indiana University Press to publish the book and to make the photographs more widely available uh, in that form. And now the book uh, consists of... Um Burke White's photographs, as well as uh, essays by yourself and Rick Halpern. Yeah, we put the book together both to highlight the photographs, so there's a whole section of the photographs with lengthy captions around them, and then to also create kind of the historical context. So Rick drafted an essay that explains the what we call the dawn of apartheid, that is the, the creation of the racial state in South Africa between 1948 and 1950. And then I wrote kind of a lengthy biographical essay that sought to put Bork White's trip there in the larger context of the sort of work that she had done previously, as you noted in your introductory remarks. Yeah, and and context is important to this project as well. It's uh, I, I was saying, uh, obviously, to you before we started this, that I had... Um, virtually little, little to no knowledge of South Africa, South Africa as a country, South Africa's history, the history of apartheid. I knew of apartheid and knew what it meant. I think Bono sings a song about it, and that's about the extent of my ignorant um, perspective on it, other than Nelson Mandela, right? So N Nelson Mandela is the world consciousness of South Africa in some sense. And this book, for me, really opens up the history of, of the country. Yeah, we sought to do two things here. One was precisely to go back behind the headlines and behind the excitement of the end of apartheid in 1994. And actually yesterday was Mandela's birthday, now that I think of it. Uh, and to try and remind people both here, but even in South Africa, of the deeper history of apartheid, how and when it came about. And at the same time, to highlight what I thought or think still is, is an underappreciated aspect of Bork White's work, because she's very well known as a photographer, but uh, not so much as a photographer, as a political photographer, or even a documentary photographer who focused on people rather than kind of aestheticized machinery, which is most of the exhibits of her work in the past decade. I've really looked at her earlier work, which looks at machinery, beautiful, but not quite what she was really about, I thought. So mm. the book both told and tells the history of apartheid and tries to give a new look at Bork White's work. Mm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest tonight is Alex Lichtenstein, associate professor in the Department of History at Indiana University. We're talking about the photojournalist Margaret Bork White and her work in South Africa for Life magazine at the dawn of apartheid. Um, so what this does well to Alex is it, it, it puts... Um, the kind of context of um, a history of photography as well, right? It sort of says here is a person that really comes out uh, at the beginning in some sense of, of industrial photography as much as photography itself, where photography is really beginning to take hold and become uh, a medium through which people are, are starting to narrate life in some sense. Yeah, I think what's interesting to me or about Bork White is how she bridges two aesthetics. So she begins her career in the 1920s with a notion of photography as, as art, uh, something that both reflects design but also 
uh, is design in and of itself. So highly aestheticized, and she trained in a, in a pictorial philosophy of photography in that sense. And actually, I'd say she did three three dimensions of photography. Then she made a living in the 1930s as a commercial photographer for advertising agencies during the Great Depression. She actually was making some money. Uh, but she also, at the same time, began to break into the world of documentary photojournalism, which was exploding in the 1930s. And then I would argue that by the 1940s and 1950s, she had really fully made the leap to a notion of social photography, the idea that photography would document social reality and that she could be a part of that. Now, of course, that, that was not something that she invented. It's not something that began in the 1930s. It certainly dates back to, to Lewis Hine, for example, in the Progressive Era. But I, th I think she ended up in that tradition while she began in a very different tradition. Yeah, she began uh, photographing, like one of her first assignments was Otis Steele, is that correct? Right, she got a job photographing steel mills in, in Cleveland, and we included an image from that work in the book because I do think it's exemplary for the kind of work she was doing in the 20s, and it's stunning, beautiful work. That's the kind of work you'll see often in museums that highlight her work. But then she moved away from that, uh, although, as I think we suggest in the book, she learned a lot technically about how to photograph under difficult conditions in terms of light, dark, heat, industrial labor. And uh, very much, I think, you can look at that photograph of Otis Steele and uh, in a steel mill in 1927, and you can see the technique that she then brings to the bottom of a gold mine in South Africa a quarter of a century later. For yeah, sure. I think she said something to the effect that you know she she her first assignment was the hardest one. <laughs> she yes, learned she right. learned really a, a, at the at the hardest thing she could do to 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 take pictures, photographs. Um, so, um, did she have any particular political stance? Not at first, I would say. And one of the things I try to chart in my introduction is how she became politicized in the 1930s, which, of course, is a moment in which photographers saw themselves potentially as, as being very active in the world by revealing the conditions under which many people were suffering during the Depression. Uh, and in particular, I think she then was drawn into that world both through her trip to the South, in the American South, in 1936 and 1937, with Erskine Caldwell to document conditions there, but also in the world of what was called popular front politics, sometimes associated with the Communist Party, but also other people on the left who, again, saw social photography. There was an outfit called the Photo League, for example, that she was engaged with that uh, really was designed to politicize people through creating photographic images that would be compelling in terms of uh, liberal or even revolutionary politics at the time. And she was positioned early on by being, um, by I guess, being chosen by Henry Luce to, to sort of be one of his primary photographers in, in the industry. Is that correct? Right. So Luce saw her photographs of the steel industry, and when he started Fortune magazine in 1930, I believe it was. On uh, the, uh, after 1929, he started Fortune magazine. Right. Yes, exactly. It's interesting. So, yes, yeah, right. Okay. And Fortune magazine was a magazine about business during the Depression, ironically enough. But it had a pretty interesting range of stories. So when she was working for Fortune, as a photographer, she did, uh, and again, we include some of these, she did a marvelous story about the meatpacking industry, where she has photographs, this is in 1930 or 31, of uh, African-American workers in a Chicago packing house, for example, which, again, I, I thought were, 
were uh, foreshadowing some of the work she did 20 years later in South Africa. And it was for Luce and for Fortune magazine that she went and documented the Dust Bowl in the Southern uh, Plains in 1934 and 1935. And I think that was really the moment in which her politics began to, to shift. She publishes an article in The Nation magazine about the Dust Bowl, for example. And, uh, and then when Luce starts... Um, Life magazine, the great photo magazine of its era, she is one of the four staff photographers that he hires on there. And the the front cover of the first issue of Life magazine is a photograph that she took of a classic New Deal era construction project, the Fort Peck Dam out in uh, Montana, I believe. And again, we include that uh, that cover image because she was so central to creating powerful images about both the Depression and the New Deal solution to it. Kind of interesting, too, the, the massive dam picture uh, on the cover of Life, and that's, the, that's what Life illustrates itself with right at the, at, the, at the outset. Yeah, I'm not sure what the decision for that was. I mean, Luce himself wasn't necessarily a proponent of, of the New Deal, uh, and I'm not sure why that was chosen as as the cover, but they had sent her out west to to depict this new program of building dams. It's the era of um, where again she she sort of ushers in these these changes where we we give in to the mechanization of everything. It becomes the world, right? How you how the industrial uh, world begins to take over, and there's a period, as you say, where she sort of. Uh, I guess sort of melts or changes or or transmutes into uh, someone who's who begins to pay more attention to people. Not as you say in the book, not that she didn't al- always have kind of an eye for the person in the in the f- photograph, but she first starts out really in the center of that kind of industrial passion that it seems like the whole country had at the time. Well, it's true, but uh, I think a lot of what has been written about her tends to suggest that in the earlier period she wasn't interested in people. And so one of the things we wanted to do here was to suggest that's not entirely true. That story on the packing houses, for example, emphasized labor. Luce sent her for Fortune magazine to document the first five-year plan in the Soviet Union. I mean, mm. she wasn't there for a left-wing publication. The Daily Worker didn't send her to the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Henry Luce and Fortune magazine did. And there she took amazing photographs, for instance, of constructions of dams and other huge projects that Stalin essentially was was advocating. But she also took a lot of photographs of just the Soviet people working and living their daily lives. And so, I, again, I think that's a, that's a precedent. So, But certainly by the second half of the 1930s, she's much more drawn to stories of, of people, people struggling in the American South, in Czechoslovakia, as you suggest, and eventually in war, in, in the Second World War. Hmm. It's time for a break. I've been speaking with Alex Lichtenstein, author with Rick Halpern of the recent book on Margaret Bork White, uh, called Margaret Bork White and the Dawn of Apartheid, published by Indiana Uni- University Press. Uh, stay with us for more of Focus on Apartheid with Alex, Alex Lichtenstein when we return to Interchange on WFHB. <laughs>
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our break music was Maputi by M. Gababa Queens off of the album Next Stop Soweto, Volume 1. Our show tonight is focused on apartheid. My guest is Alec Alex Lichtenstein, and the focus of our conversation is the focus of Margaret Bourke-White, a prominent mid-20th century photographer for Life and Fortune magazines. The first segment, we talked about uh, Bourke-White's kind of path to uh, photographic prominence. She did a lot of industrial photography. Uh, she became a, a staff photographer for Life magazine, Henry Luce's Life magazine. Um, and uh, how, Alex, how did she get so famous? I mean, she was really famous fast, right? Um, she was very much a celebrity photographer of the day. I mean, in part, it's because she was glamorous. I mean, we include some of these images in the book. She was charismatic. She was beautiful. She was a woman photographer. I think that was unusual for the day and age, and so that certainly was something that caught people's attention. And really, I think Life magazine catapulted her to kind of the forefront of commercial photography and, and photojournalism. A, a lot of her uh, fellow photographers, I would say, were, were resentful and envious of her. This is a period in which a lot of photographers are struggling to make ends meet. They end up working for the Farm Security Administration. I think most people are quite familiar with the work of Dorothea Lange or Arthur Rothstein, well-known photographs. She was making a living for uh, commercial advertising agencies and then for Life magazine in, in the 30s. And, uh, and I also think she felt vaguely uncomfortable with that while uh, her fellow photographers were scraping by working for the FSA. So, but, uh, but yeah, she was a glamorous figure at the time and, and played that up to a certain extent. Was she she um, she became prepared for the work in South Africa by all these assignment these particular assignments that seemed to that she seemed to show up in at exactly the right time I think you say in the book I don't know how to explain that I mean that's what's truly extraordinary about her is is this and this is of course I think true of all great photojournalists but the knack of being at the right place at the right time so you went through some of the examples at, at the beginning uh, now of course she was sent to these places on assignment but she often suggested where she would would go. So she goes to Czechoslovakia in 1938, right as the Nazis are getting ready to, to take it over. I suppose that didn't take a, a genius to figure out that was <laughs> the place to be the at the time. Be, right. uh, but still, uh, then she went to Russia and she happened to be in Moscow in the summer of 1941 when the Germans bombarded Russia and began the, the war assault on, on the Soviet Union. 
And then uh, she was in with Patton's army uh, moving eastward across Germany in 1945. And as you said at the beginning, therefore, was was there at the liberation of, of the concentration camp Buchenwald. And that was quite a, a powerful place to be. And she took a series of photographs, quite shocking photographs, really, uh, that appeared in the May 7th, 1945 issue of, of Life magazine. Then she went to India during partition, and she happened to be one of the last people to speak with uh, Mahatma Gandhi right hours before he was assassinated. And uh, then she went on to South Africa, and the day she arrived, and this always struck me, I don't know whether it was deliberate or not, was December 16th, 1949, which it's a complicated story, but this is the moment at which the great piece of really fascist architecture was inaugurated. That's the Fortrecker Monument outside of Pretoria, which is this giant, still stands there, kind of mausoleum to the founders of white South African identity, as it were. And it was inaugurated on December 16th, 1949, and she was there photographing for Life magazine. So again, really extraordinary ability to, to know what, you know what an important moment was, to capture it, and in some ways to create it. I mean, I think one of the reasons these are understood as important moments is because people like her were documenting them. Mm. Well, creating it is a, a, a good a, a good way to think about how how we look at photojournalism too. Uh, we'll take a little uh, a little side trip here into the idea of what it means to be a photojournalist, or the idea of taking pictures and how one uh, composes them in the moments. There are people, I suppose, that believe that uh, you need to take pictures as they happen and I, uh, document moments as they happen rather than frame them or compose them. I suppose, but I think she did both. Uh, I mean, one of the things that was really revelatory to me was to discover, and we include some of these in the book, her contact sheets, her negatives, so that we could see that taking a photograph was for her was both positioning herself in the right place at the right time, being patient, but also sometimes setting it up, but taking literally hundreds of photographs of any one scene. And the ones that come to be iconic are the ones that either she chose to send back to New York to her editors, sometimes the ones that her editors chose. So we tried to play with that by mixing up the ones that appeared in the magazine, which tend to be chosen by the editors and become iconic, therefore, for instance, the one of the two miners underground. And then mixing those up with ones that remain buried in the archives because they didn't get chosen and they show both her working process but also kind of the story behind the this, this story. So, But there's a mix, I think, of, of spontaneity and posing in, in, her, in her photographs. I mean, she's a nice description of her trip southward with Erskine Caldwell where she describes how Caldwell would engage their subjects, poor sharecroppers mostly, in conversation, and she would just sit there quietly uh, waiting for a moment to take a photograph. But she would take several photographs and, and uh, then choose amongst them. It's hard for us maybe to understand how uh, the, the technology was at the time. We should probably try to understand that also, as I have in, an iPhone in my pocket and I press a button and it click, 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 clicks, uh, and I catch things. And maybe it looks like I composed something interesting, but I certainly didn't. Um, this, was not, this was not that kind of te technology. No, it wasn't. I mean, this is not something I'm, I'm super well qualified to speak about. But again, I think she was someone who marked a transition. So very 
much when she began, she's using large, what are called four by five format standing tripod cameras. She carried around hundreds of pounds of gear with her when she went to the Soviet Union, for example. It took a long time to set up a shot, to pose it, to light it. And, you know, I was very careful. In some ways, uh, studio photography moving outside into the realm of photojournalism. But she eventually, as she began to do more and more, I suppose, stories that were, well, wartime, for example, as she became a combat photographer, uh, or when she was traveling around the South into places where there was no electricity, where it was difficult to move equipment around, she began to experiment with a smaller camera, the Roloflex at the time. And, th- and that was the camera that, that really, I think, at the time, revolutionized photojournalism the way that the iPhone has revolutionized who can take a picture now. So that's where you have this idea that emerges of the decisive moment, right? The the Cartier-Bresson idea that uh, if the photographer has equipment that can be used quickly and nimbly, he or she can just capture that, that key moment. Now, although she used that equipment, she never was of the decisive moment school. So again, I think she was a hybrid of someone who began to adopt the more nimble equipment, but still was wedded to a sense of trying to to pose and set up up to a certain point. Is there any good um, a book, Alex, of her a sort of a complete work where you can see these photo sheets, like uh, like you said, her uh, her negative sheets? No, I mean, I think we're the only ones who've ever published those. I mean, that's mm. one of the things I tried very hard to do in this book. First of all, those aren't widely available. We found them in the archives at Syracuse University, which is where her papers are. Uh, so, no, I, I actually think this is the only time that anyone has published or exhibited her her contact sheets. And they are, one of my favorite ones shows uh, her efforts. Well, there are two nice examples of this. One is she kind of lands, she comes by, I don't know if she comes by plane or not, but she, she pops up in a shantytown that is kind of beginning to grow on the southwest corner of Johannesburg. Later it becomes Soweto. And you see in her contact sheets how she really, the, the, the community there, the youth especially, look at her very suspiciously. And she has a photograph of them sort of, you know, with their arms crossed, somewhat hostile. What is this white lady doing here with all this camera equipment? And then about two frames later, you can see that she prevailed on them to sort of pose for, for her as if they were movie stars and got them to relax. And it's a wonderful sort of way of getting at her, her work process. And then she was able to go into the community. And another one, one of my favorites is, there's a very famous photograph, and this one has been reproduced, of a protest in the same community or nearby in, in Soweto. Um, an anti-pass protest, and we can talk about this in a minute, an mm-hmm. anti-apartheid protest, protest, essentially. And the image that we know is all men. And I found one of her contact sheets that shows that most of the people at this actual protest were African women, not men. So mm-hmm. I juxtaposed those two images to, to show, well, there's a story here that that doesn't appear. The photographs hide as well as show. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest tonight is Alex Lichtenstein, associate professor in the Department of History at, at Indiana University. We're talking about the photojournalist Margaret Bork-White and her work in South Africa for Life magazine at the dawn of apartheid. We're talking about other work of hers as well. The, the What Alex had just talked about in terms of uh, the contact sheets, That's that, that, Alex, that to me, again, is one of the fascinating stories here, is that Burke White's work is... Um, 
is magazine work still in some sense? You know, it's still what was chosen and put into these photo essays for magazines, which also have their own particular um, angles of vision, we should say. I think there's one, actually, there's one... um, there's one picture in here, and, and skipping ahead, I, uh, again, we're going to move into the South Africa photos, but it's a South African photo of a minor uh, camp, I suppose, and they're um, dressed to begin their, uh, their sun, I guess, Sunday dance or tribal dances that they put on on Sunday. And you say, I think, in the book that the, the caption or the, or the editorial in, in the magazine speaks to their uh, being in close quarters and that encouraging homosexuality. Which is, of course, ridiculous. But, right. Yeah. Right. So, I, again, I wish I knew how she reacted to that. I mean, this, again, was an interesting part of her story. So the miners that she photographed underground, she actually discovered, which she went, of course, one of the things you do when you're in Johannesburg back in 1950. And if you're a photographer, you want to document the system of labor on the gold mines. It's migrant labor to the mines. And this is really, as she quickly discovered, was the economic engine that made South Africa tick and that really was central to the apartheid system, that is the system of segregation and racial control. So migrant labor from all over Southern Africa to the gold mines around Johannesburg was really the the, the heart of the system, certainly the economic heart of the system anyway. So she went to document that. And of course the mine owners and the managers of the mine said, oh yeah, come on a Sunday because we have these wonderful tribal dances that the miners put on. And she wasn't fooled by that. She went and she very quickly saw that this was something that was kind of put on for whites. Uh, And so she took a photograph that shows a white audience with the black miners. Uh, But then she miraculously, I think, got access to the closed compound. These miners were not people who could live in the community. They were confined to essentially a barrack and they couldn't come and go freely. It's almost a prison. In fact, she recognized that that parallel. Somehow she got access to the barracks, to the compound, as it was called, and took a photograph of the dancers in there. It's not clear to me whether it was right before their dance or right afterwards. So she's trying to document the whole system, the Sunday dance, the living conditions in the compounds. We have a contact sheet from that as well. And then, of course, she talked her way to go two miles underground with the same miners that she had observed in the compound and dancing. So this was her her way of trying to to portray the whole system. But of course, as as you note, she had less control over how Life magazine would would use the photographs. Now, it's true that the story that ran in Life magazine in September 1950 did have as its theme what it called South Africa and its problem. And it was about racism and it was about apartheid and it was about the gold mining industry so that much of it got in there but as you suggest the captions were chosen by the editors and some of them were were kind of odd let's say <laughs> that one in particular yeah well we should we should turn to the south african uh, photos as well and as you say life sent her there um sort of a, a, as you say at the beginning of this uh, particular um, I guess one of the what struck me about it was the the clear um, uh, program of, of, of racial domination the clear program of white supremacy uh, already in a country that was vastly I mean massively segregated as it was but what uh, can I guess give us a little political background there if you yeah, can. yeah this is a complicated story so the key moment is 1948 And that's where in South Africa you have the election of a group of whites called the Afrikaner Nationalists, and they're, or the Boers. 
historically speaking, they had always been kind of in struggle with the other whites in Southern Africa, namely English-speaking whites. So the Afrikaners were descended from Dutch colonists from the 17th and 18th centuries, and had always sort of been playing second fiddle to the British Empire in South Africa. But it's in 1948 when they succeed in winning uh, winning power, electorally, of course, in an all-white election, because this is a place where whites are politically empowered and blacks are stripped of their rights even before 1948. But when they come to power in 1948, they do so on a program that was explicitly devoted to hardening and extending racial laws to making sure that black people would not be able to move forward toward any kind of rights, to stripping them of any possibility of the franchise and to strengthening the structures of white supremacy at the time. So, I mean, as you suggest, this wasn't a complete break with the past by any means, but what's striking about it at the time, I think, and I think this is what life was after, was that it's moving in the opposite direction from the rest of the world, which internationally was moving towards decolonization, the ending of European power in Africa, and of course in the United States. It would be as if uh, Strom Thurmond and the Dixiecrats, that is the party, the states' rights party in 1948 that split from the Democrats and ran on an explicitly segregationist platform, it would be as if they had won the election of 1948 instead of Harry Truman. Hmm. That would be, I think, a, a good parallel to think of. So uh, I think Life Center there in part to document this in a way to suggest that the United States was moving in a beneficent direction, right, to, to highlight American civil rights progress as opposed to the backwardness of South Africa as it was seen at the time. Right, to end ending Jim Crow uh, and and rather than instilling Jim Crow in South right. Africa. Right, no, that was a long way off still in 1948 and 1949 right. in the United States, but still the, the, the trend was beginning, and actually Bork White's... Uh, story in Life magazine right before South African assignment was called The New South, Things Are Getting Better. I think it's October 1949. So uh, so she had just gone back to the South after having been there in 1937, and then she did this story that was all about progress. And one of the photographs, for example, is of a integrated or let's pseudo-integrated steelworkers union in Gadsden, Alabama in 1949. Of course, as we note in the caption, uh, it's true it's an integrated union, but the blacks and whites steel workers are still sitting on opposite sides of the union hall. So um, that was progress in the United States South in 1949, I suppose. Hmm. Well, it's time for a break. I've been speaking with Alex Lichtenstein, co-author with Rick Halpern of a recent book, Margaret Bourke White and the Dawn of Apartheid, published by Indiana University Press. Stay with us for more with Alex Lichtenstein when we return to Interchange. Under Chigasuma, 
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our break music was Quela Roots by Quela Tebza, a song off of the album Six Faces of Dr. Quela, out in 2000. Quela is a penny whistle-based street music from Southern Africa with jazzy underpinnings, as you can hear, and a distinctive skiffle-like beat. I don't know what that means, skiffle-like. Maybe someone can explain that to me. Skiffle-like beat. It evolved from the Marabai? Marabi. Marabi, thank you. Sound and brought South African music to international prominence in the 1950s. Our show today, Focus on Apartheid, looks at the dawn of apartheid through the camera lens of the famous photographer and photo essayist Margaret Bourke-White. These are the focus of my guest Alec Lichtenstein's new book, Margaret Bourke-White and the Dawn of Apartheid, published by IU Press. Uh, We've talked about Margaret Bourke-White's rise to prominence as a photographer, her beginnings as an industrial photographer, um, her sort of uniqueness as a female photographer. Um, She was kind of a, a star of photography. She Uh, Also is a kind of, uh, I guess, artist who was in the right place at the right time all the time, uh, being in various places when really bad things went down, it seemed like. uh, And she was able to capture it. And uh, the book, uh, Margaret Bourke-White and the Dawn of Apartheid, is about another time. And uh, is it really the... The last thing, is it like her last big project? It is one of her last big projects. Uh, She does a few stories afterwards. I think she goes to Brazil. But a few years after she did this story, she contracted Parkinson's disease. Mm. And that really, her hands began to shake. It Mm -hmm. ended her working life really quite tragic. And she died, I think, in 1971. But essentially, from 1954 or 55 onward, she hardly worked at all. So this was really her... Her last major story, I, I think, other than the one in Brazil, which has some interesting photographs, but this is the one that really, I think, struck home in terms of uh, what was going on in the world at the moment. It's pretty shocking things going on in South Africa the, uh, in the sense that uh, the World War II had just ended. You know, fascism and, and totalitarianism uh, defeated, and here it is right in the face of things, just saying, here, we're going to bring it to you. I, I think that's really what drove her. Is the deeper she dug into this story, the more shocked she was by what was going on there. Certainly she knew that racism abounded in South Africa, that this was a social order in which whites ruled over blacks, in which a white majority, a white minority, excuse me, called the shots, and a black majority was stripped of of rights. 
But it was really when she got there and began to travel around the country and observe this firsthand, I found some of her correspondence back to friends. Uh, she really was, was appalled and shocked. And I think it's very much because she, she imagined, along with many people of her generation, that fascism had been defeated on the battlefields of, of Europe. She had been present at the liberation of a concentration camp. And then five years later, she's witnessing an ideology and even scenes which remind her all too much of, of that ideology and that moment. Yeah, that's shocking that you, uh, picture that you talked about earlier, Vortrekker, uh, uh, Vortrekker? The Vortrekker monument. Where right. uh, that picture, and yeah, if I, do you have that one up on the website? Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. So that one's up on the website. I'll give you the address when we're at the end of the show. But that picture is one of those, again, we, I think we talked about the cinematic quality of, of, of her photographs as well. But it's one of those things being at this time uh, of life to, to have seen movies of, of Nazi, um, well, to see Indiana Jones movies in some sense and sort of make that uh, uh, entertainment. But that's what that picture kind of <laughs> looks like. It's like a, a, and a Steven Spielberg picture. And I think it did to people at the, at the time, though, because this was this was was literally, quite literally, the uh, Afrikaners uh, Nuremberg rally, as oh, it man. were. I mean, there's yeah. just no way around that. And I think she was aware of that. And the Compared with umbrellas and, yeah, and picnics. And, yeah, right. Oh, my gosh, and, yeah. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people mm-hmm. and kind of a, a recreation of a mythical past, a mythical Afrikaner past, and she captures that. Uh, the architect himself uh, had been uh, influenced by fascist architecture, was an admirer of Mussolini. And uh, to its credit, I would say, Life magazine chose to capture, uh, uh, caption the photograph of the monument uh, built to last for a thousand years. And this is very clearly yeah, in 1949, Reich, uh, action, right, a, right. a reference to the notion of the Third Reich, nice. which had just been defeated uh, you know, only five years before. So I think that's a very deliberate effort to to convey anxieties about that. You make that the point that past. she begins this uh, photographic trip by making nice. She does. I mean, the first story, which is published in January 1950, uh, with, I think, that major exception of the way she portrayed the monument, but it's a relatively gentle account of Afrikanerdom, and she certainly won over the whites uh, in the communities in which she was photographed. She did a lot of portraits of the new leadership, uh, the Afrikaner leadership, including a photograph of the cabinet. And in general, she didn't let slip what she was really thinking or what story she was after. And then in her notes, she says, yes, and then I was able to travel around freely to document what I was really interested in, labor in the mines, the uh, convict labor camps on the farms, the awful system of child labor and children being uh, encouraged to drink wine in the fields of the Western Cape in order to enslave them to, to alcohol as part of the labor system. Those are the things she was really interested in photographing. And she got access by, I think, winning over her hosts in her first story. These are shocking parallels to our own history in many ways, right? I mean, alcohol, we have a native population that, that, are, that are basically um, ruined by alcohol in many ways. There, um, the the idea of the um, uh, minority uh, uh, white population at the time when slavery begins, uh, it, with Haiti and the the South of South Carolina and New Orleans as as well as is controlled by 
uh, white Southerners and, uh, well, I guess white English people and Spanish people at the time. Um, but these, these are really sort of blueprint activities. Well, in a lot of ways, it's true. I mean, this is what drew me and many other historians uh, of the American South, which is how I really began my career, to an interest in South African history, is that there are parallels, and actually some of them to do with the subjugation of Native populations by settler colonialists, some of them having to do with slavery, and some of them having to do with the imposition of, of white supremacy through through segregation or Jim Crow and apartheid in South, the South African case. Uh, so it, it's unclear to me how much Bork White saw those parallels. Mm. I mean, for instance, when she saw the children, child labor in the fields, to her, she says this explicitly, it reminded her of the child labor conditions she had just witnessed in India. In India, right. When she saw people herded into these uh, squatter camps on the edge of Johannesburg, she saw this as unfortunately similar to what she had just witnessed in Germany and indeed poses a photograph uh, that is very reminiscent of one she took at a concentration camp in 1945. When she sees the black miners underground, yeah, I think that reminds her of the exploitation of black labor in the American South. So that is is a parallel. And certainly, and the place where that parallel struck me the most forcefully was when she goes to the prison camps out in the countryside of South Africa, and she had very similar photographs that she had taken in uh, Georgia in 1936 and 1937. So I include both of those. So the, the subjugation, the use of the penal system, the criminal justice system, to subjugate people of color in the American South, she saw very much being wielded uh, as a crucial component of apartheid in South Africa in 1950. And of course, you know, we know that that sort of set of questions have not gone away in the United States, to be sure. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest tonight is Alex Lichtenstein, associate professor in the Department of History at Indiana University. We're talking about the photojournalist Margaret Bork-White and her work in South Africa for Life magazine at the dawn of apartheid. Yeah, uh, one of the, the pictures, and I'm going to put this as the, the, the primary illustration on the website, is of um, you know Stop Police Terror uh, that, we, that you talked about earlier. Uh, and and it was uh, an anti-pass rally, I think uh, you say in the, in the book. And uh, passes, it turns out to be almost like uh, traffic stops for us now, the sense that uh, you're going to be um, stopped for any infraction you can think of and um, criminalized and put to work. Yeah, actually, that's a very interesting. So apartheid uh, operated through not just the imposition, but the strengthening of, because it had existed in South Africa for a long time, uh, that all black people, natives, as they would have been called, were required to carry a pass which allowed them to temporarily reside in or pass through a white neighborhood uh, on their way to or from work. And the pass had to show who they were employed by, how long they'd been employed, uh, did they have a right to be in that area, what their tribal authority or tribal place was, and if the police thought their pass was not in order, they would essentially be expelled back to the countryside or arrested and put to work uh, on a prison farm. And that's how the pass system worked, both to command labor for farmers, to, uh, as it was seen, to protect middle-class white people from black people who were walking around where they shouldn't walk right, around. Black this, peril, right, I think you call it. Sounds right. familiar. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. of course, most importantly, to regulate the flow of migrant labor to the mine. So the pass system, Bork White very quickly recognized, was, was absolutely instrumental both to racial control and segregation, but also to 
the economy itself. And of course, as you suggested, that's something that had a powerful, powerful parallel in American history, which was if a slave went from one plantation to another in South Carolina, they had to carry a pass. After emancipation in the 1860s in the American South, that's what many whites sought to reimpose in the American South was a pass or permit system. Mm -hmm. So this was something that was not invented by South Africans by any means. And then I would say, unfortunately, it does have parallels today, both in the sort of papers please laws that are being passed in places like Arizona uh, around migrant labor and, and uh, that control Hispanic movement. And of course, through the kind of, you know, uh, random stops that seem to target certain people in this country and the police are stopping people for driving for minor infractions. Mm. So the past system, unfortunately, may be, be alive and, and well. But she was, Bork White was really at great pains to document that in terms of going to the pass office, in terms of uh, photographing people who had been arrested on pass violations and were working on prison farms. And as you suggest, uh, this was the key pressure point at which this was the thing that I think Africans under apartheid objected to most vigorously at the time. And that's why the protest that she documents was an anti-pass protest. And not incidentally, the kind of the key turning point in South African history comes in 1960 with an anti-pass protest, which leads to what was then called the the, um, the Sharpeville Massacre, in which the South African police killed 69 people, shooting them in the back in 1960. And that is really when apartheid went from being a racially a repressive system to the full-blown police state that Nelson Mandela, for example, became a victim of. Hmm. Well, it was, as you say, it was already a police state, one in which they, they showed their, their, I guess, their true colors at that yes. point. Yes, yeah. right. Yeah. The, the, um, well, again, another thing that, that certainly a parallel is just the, the single, uh, sort of the single commodity focus in some sense, right? We, here in this country, uh, cotton was king, uh, well, sugar too, I suppose, uh, but cotton primarily, and here, uh, gold is the only thing that happens in, in South Africa. Up to a point, mm. but yes. But in 1950, gold was the name of the game, and that was really uh, important because, of course, gold had a fixed price on the world market. And the gold mine industry in South Africa was the largest gold mine industry in the world at the time, uh, was extremely, was, was driven by the problems of having fixed costs, and the gold was very, very deep underground. So the amount of capital that went into getting it out of the ground was extremely high, the amount of initial investment. So there was only one way to make it profitable, and that was super cheap African labor. And that's what the gold mining system was about. And that in many ways, people have argued anyway, apartheid was designed to continue the flow of that migrant labor to get that gold out of the ground to mm. power the South African economy and not incidentally, the world economy in some ways, and the American economy. Well, you talked to about, uh, the, you were talking about migrant labor here, and it's again another thing to try to understand. Uh, these, um, in this area in South Africa, the, uh, again, natives uh, of the area were, were removed from their own land in the first place and moved to about 17% of the total right. land mass or something right. like that. And that, that particular land wasn't uh, arable enough to sustain anyone's actual living and right. then it was and your living was taxed as well is that correct or you, you like you I mean to... it changes over time but the basic outline there is correct in other words the colonial state when South Africa was was uh, 
created as a white colony in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, was based on dispossessing Africans of their land and imposing a hut tax, essentially a poll tax mm -hmm. on each individual. And so without enough arable land and with a tax to pay, that meant that Africans had to go out to the mines to work for white people. Uh, either on farms or mines in order to pay that tax and in order to remit money back to it's a bit like how the global north impoverishes the global south today and then complains that all these people are coming to the united states for instance across the border to mm -hmm. work needs their cheap labor to you know work in the the bottom of the economy but resents their presence and then wants yeah. to expel them that's so what i say this similar. is an amazing template um, society, right, where you can see how these things operate so um, bright and shining in this one space and to, and to be able to just say, oh, that's happening there too, and that's happening there too, and that's happening Absolutely. There I mean, South Africa in many ways uh, under apartheid and in 1950 concentrated so many of the contradictions of the modern world in terms of segregation, colonialism, racism, and even this notion of migrant labor, which very similar, for instance, to the guest worker program in the United States at the time. Uh, and that's something in some ways that hasn't changed in South Africa, even though the country's a democracy now and it's been liberated from apartheid. Uh, there's a lot of poverty there. And if you go there now, you have a sense of the basic world contradiction in which we live in, which is great wealth side by side with enormous poverty. But in South Africa, those two things are directly next to each other still rather than a world away as, as we imagine it is when we live in a place like the United States. I mean, it's a false imaginary, but, uh, but in South Africa, you can't turn away from it. Hmm. Well, that's all the time we have. Thanks, Alex Lichtenstein. It was a real education and a reminder of how so much of what Bork White documented about, what, 66 years ago or so as currency in this country at this moment. And this, like the great novelist of the South, William Faulkner, reminds us that the past is never dead. It's not even past. If you want to find out more about Margaret Bork White and her photographs in uh, South Africa, Alex has a website you can visit, borkwhite.wordpress.com, B-O-U-R-K-E-W-H-I-T-E.wordpress.com. This website was created to accompany the photography exhibit, Photos in Black and White, Margaret Bork White and the Dawn of Apartheid in South Africa. Thanks for being with me, Alex. Thank you, Doug. Next time on Interchange, lynchings on loop. How Terror Goes Viral, Alton Sterling, Philando Castile. In the era of democratized media, where everyone has a video camera and worldwide live distribution system in their pockets, spectacles of horror now seem to appear weekly, filling TV screens, social media, and our minds. Every new shocking image presents each of us with the dilemma of whether to look or turn away in disgust, but if we can't look away, we must know how to look, now more than ever. Author Courtney Baker urges a particular kind of look, which she calls humane insight. It's the title of her book, published last year, about the history of the image of the mortal, wounded, and dead black body in America, which has long been viewed by others from a safe distance. Lynchings on loop on the next Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. Our final song tonight is Yakal Nkomo by Winston Mankunku Ngozi. Mankunku was a South African tenor saxophonist who chose to remain in his native Cape Town during apartheid. This meant he was subjected to the Separate Amenities Act of 1953, which legalized the racial segregation of public premises, vehicles, and services. He recorded this song, a breakthrough hit in 1968, with Early Mabuza, Agrippa Magwaza, and Lionel Pillay. The Separate Amenities Act was repealed by the South African Parliament in 1990. 
Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon. Our board engineer tonight is Jennifer Brooks, and Joe Crawford is executive producer. The Jazz Menagerie is coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.